it was a very creative time and uh, Brian was right in there too. The fact that they were coming into their own as musicians and as writers, the whole thing blossomed. Welcome back to the Ceylon Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. Happy New Year, my dear sailors. I hope 2024 is going well for you. I hope everyone had a great holiday season, whatever that is, that you choose to celebrate. And uh, it was great for me. Got some rest, saw family, ate way too much food, as you do. It's an exciting day here for us at the podcast headquarters. By the time you hear this, we will have surpassed 500,000 downloads. Half a million sailors. Can't be wrong. I really appreciate everyone for sticking with us. Six years and counting. We're just getting started as far as I'm concerned. So not a lot of news on the Beach Boys front, but sadly we did just lose a very dear member of the Beach Boys family, Jeff Foskett who battled thyroid cancer for many years, passed away. He was with the group off and on in different iterations for the better part of 40 years. You'll be missed greatly. I'm already working on some sort of tribute to Jeff for a future episode, so stay tuned. If you have any memories of Jeff, please send them to me, sailonpodcast at gmail.com. I want to give a huge shout out to our newest patrons who support the show, Julian Fader, Max Clark, and Lane McCullough. I got to meet Lane in Delaware a few weeks back, so thanks for coming out, Lane, and it was great chatting with you, and I appreciate all your support. The first of our commentary tracks is up now, where Nia and I watched Summer Dreams, the 1990 Beach Boys movie, and you can watch along with us at patreon.com slash on. It's quite a fun ride, so please check it out. Lots of other great bonus material coming your way every month, as always. So it's about time, so let's get back into Sunflower now with Will Crera and John Brody. Moving on to January 7th. 
they now record a new version of Suzu Cincinnati, and this is the version that was overdubbed and finished and then released about 6,000 times. <laughs> yeah, so this, this session started at Brian's house, um, although he didn't participate he must, this He time. must have been in bed. He, he turned up later in the day, but I, he was probably asleep when they were doing this. Um, it probably. Was, yeah, it was just Al, Bruce, and the Dragon Brothers at the start, no other Beach Boys. Um, Al playing this very sort of driving nice guitar part with like the, I don't know it's just a sort of driving rhythm and then these he's playing the lead parts this time instead of Carl um, Bruce is playing he's, Bruce is kind of just there for encouragement he plays this piano that's pretty much off mic and then is not featured at all in that session uh, highlight mix of the on the field flows box the Dragon Brothers are the rhythm section here Daryl's playing the bass and Dennis Dragon is playing the drums which sound really nice on this one he's a very sort of energetic drummer quite different to the usual Beach Boys drummer mm-hmm. it's like you see you know he's all over these tom fills and playing with a, a lot of sort of punkish energy he's a very different personality to Daryl and it's a fun song too it's got a nice catchy riff that that kicks things off yeah it's the same riff as um a song by the Velvet Underground cause I think it's beginning to see the light or something, I'm not sure. I've, I've wondered, since Al said this was kind of a put-on parody of a Flame song, if he saw that they were doing a song called See the Light and goes, ooh, I wonder if... There's another song I know that has See the Light in the title. I'll use the guitar riff from that <laughs> or something, but I don't know. I, I find it yeah. kind of hard to believe that I would have heard of the Velvet Underground, but maybe. Who knows? It's not like the most obscure thing in the world to arrive at, that little guitar lick. Yeah. You want to talk about the uh, the overdubs on this track? Yeah, so they, they kind of they have a very simple, rocking, good basic track, and then they kind of got strange with it. I think Brian turned up and then got quite heavily involved in the production of this after the original basic track. Um, there's a clavinet on there played by Daryl and then Brian played a harmonica on this one just like on, on Back Home uh, which is kind of, sound, kind of sounds silly on this one I'm not really a fan of harmonica but I, I think you like it don't you yeah I don't mind it I mean yeah, I kind of like how it leads into that last drum fill before the fade there's, there's, an, there's an organ on here and then there's some more percussion like a, like, like a tambourine and then for some reason the guitars were all redone like Al's basic track guitar was it was really nice was erased and then they replaced it with this kind of like weedy sounding 12 string and then like like i guess a fuzz guitar played by carl is um it does a kind of a nice solo but otherwise i think the the driving rhythm guitar that was really the the key to the whole thing is was lost and then what they replaced it with sounds a lot weaker and it's more of a quirky kind of beach boysy production but i I don't know if that was the right move for the song that's just me Let's talk about the vocals. So this is another one that Brian um, got involved with and and kind of became a part of and 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 um, 
probably helped to arrange some of it as well, just because he typically does. Yeah, it sounds like his vocal arrangement and like the, the harmonica and, and the organ sound like his ideas. Um, it's a very, you know, Brian vocal arrangement. It's sort of a thick five-part harmony. Um kind of goofy I don't love these vocals like the oorah oorah Cincinnati parts like Brian and Al in particular sound like I keep using the the description goblin vocals to describe some of the singing at this time but it's very nasal and pinched and and kind of a little bit off key um it sounds kind of a yeah little bit you know silly. I don't love Al on this song um his lead vocal is a little bit too over the top for me especially the way he starts like yelling yeah <laughs> it just it's 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 get yourself pretty together cheesy. I, don't, I don't really yeah, <laughs> yeah i don't really know if al pulls that off i don't know if he was the guy for that it, it kind of turns into more of a novelty song than it needed to be yeah, he does sound great at the end there. Like, um, what's the last verse? She got a money meter too, all polished up and shines for you. Yeah. He sounds good there. Um, and I really like the ending when, it when for some reason, the vocal switches over to Dennis. Um, and this is kind of buried in some mixes, but he has this um, kind of just improvised... <laughs> vocal at the end for some reason yeah oh, and he I sounds love, really good on it i love yeah i love that dennis part I, I, I don't know about the part where he kind of comes in with that falsetto going like Wah! beforehand but you know but when he starts singing like after that it's it's a, a great vocal and it's always nice to hear dennis show up on somebody else's song Continuing with Al's sound effects passion that he really got into with Loop de Loop, this one has the uh, real sound effects at the start of Steve Desper's 1959 Mercedes Benz uh, 190 SL, um, shiny, <laughs> shiny, shiny car that was Specific. recorded. Yeah, it was. The, 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 I think the make of car was written on the tape box. I'm not sure, and uh, it had a note saying S Desper <laughs> at the wheel, which is pretty funny. Um, they recorded that outside Brian's house on February 6th, just before they were about to mix it. And it was, I don't know, it sounds kind of gimmicky to have the sound effects at the start of the song, but hey, it's, uh, I, I like knowing that it was Desper driving it. Um, it's like it's like a sequel to 409. Yeah, so, so this song was the B-side to add some music originally, and it had a long, long history. Um, so it was a B-side when that single came out, but obviously the single kind of flopped. It was going to be the lead-off track of the Sunflower album, the original Sunflower album. Um, an unusual decision to start it off, but it didn't end there. Brian loved this song for some reason. He had a, like a, a strong attachment to it. Um, they were going to put it on the, um, I guess, the album after Sunflower, before Surf's Up, the second Warner Brothers sort of rough reel. After that, there's a tape of Brian playing it in the cottage in Holland. Um, for some reason, I don't know why, but Brian was kind of toying with the song and he's bashing it out of the piano. And then in 1974, it's the B-side to the hastily released um, Child of Winter single. It was it was put out as a B-side to that song, which obviously, you know, it was Brian's, Brian's single. It would have been his 
probably his idea to put that on the B-side. Mm-hmm. Um, it was another B-side in 76. I can't remember to what. It was, was it rock and roll music or It's Okay? I can't remember which one. It's Okay, I believe. Yeah, I think right. rock and roll music had TM song on the other side. Oh, yeah, yeah. Time. No, I've, I've seen that in person. That, that makes sense. Um, and yeah, they, they were going to record, I think, a new version of it for 15 big ones, but they didn't, and they ended up just doing a remix of the original to put on that album. So that was like one of the only non-Brian original songs on the album was just Susie Cincinnati with a with a remix. Um, Dennis yeah. called well, it. Well, it hadn't been on a on an album yet. Yeah, Dennis called it a silly piece of shit. Maybe one of the other Beach Boys thought of it. And then they were performing it live as well, which is my favorite version of the song. Um, the live one they did in '76. It's kind of slowed down. It's heavier. Al sings it like a normal human being. Um, there's horns. Yeah, there's horns, which interestingly, in the original session, Bruce reminds Alan one point that don't you want to have horns somewhere? And I was like, yeah, so there were, there were plans to have a horn section on this, but they moved away from that and didn't do it. Um, but then they also, kind of brought, that, brought back that idea. Um, I misspoke. It, it was the B-side, not to It's Okay, but to Everyone's In Love With You, which was an A-side for some reason. Oh, what the hell? Really? Yeah, I mean, it didn't go anywhere, but it, it was a, a single... How did that happen? <laughs> I that, don't know. That is a disgusting single. My God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so that they were doing the song live, and then there was Al wanted was gonna write a sequel to the song, but he never wrote. Maybe he did. Maybe he's still working on it now, and we'll get Wendy Cincinnati version five in 2026 when he's 20, no 2036 when he's like a head in a jar, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, then there's been so many remixes of the song over the years. It was um, remixed for the Made in California box set in 2012, and then it was um, remixed for Feel Flows box set, and it was re-remixed for the final Feel Flows box set, um, with Al requesting the, the 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 sound effects be taken off it. And um, there there are too many mixes of the song out there. Like there are like maybe five or six or something like that. I I've got mixed. Feel- I mean, I don't love it, but I'm I'm kind of fine with it existing because it's funny how long this saga went on for yeah i don't think i love it as much as brian does or al but it is a nice <laughs> yeah. song uh some parts of it are are a bit over the top but that's okay because this is kind of a period where they were doing really ridiculous things in their songs and and it does it does fit the sunflower yeah vibe one two three go Later on January 7th, uh, Brian obviously got out of bed and heard what they'd done with the Cincinnati track and got kind of involved with that. And then they tracked a new song of his that he'd also co-written with Al later that same day, which was Good Time. Um, And this is another one in the kind of series of comedy songs that Brian was doing at this time. And it's probably like the most interesting um, production of all of those. Yeah, the way they, they recorded this is really interesting. Um, so <laughs> the main rhythm instrument that Brian was playing on this was harmonica. Um, he was holding three harmonicas to get all the right chords rather than playing any sort of keyboard instrument on the basic track. Um, and there was a keyboard. We do have Bruce playing this clavinet, uh, filtered through a Leslie speaker, which is that swirly sound that. <clears throat> that sounds really cool. Yeah, really cool. Um, it's like a carnival sort of sound. It's yeah, it yeah, like and, an and old organ. 
it fits this song. And we also have Carl doing some really quiet strumming on a ukulele. And then uh, we got the Dragon Brothers on bass and drums. Uh, but Brian is playing these these harmonicas. Um, and it's sort of the dominant instrument. And it's and <laughs> he definitely struggles with it on the session. I mean, he has some troubles, you know, making sure he's pulling up the right harmonica on the right chord and yeah. getting the rhythm right and, you know... <laughs> blowing in and out and all that but um what what an interesting way to to start a production to record a basic track um so they they got the track and then they put on a few more instruments um carl played this extra little part on the ukulele that is sort of buried in the final mix yeah it's like a nice little kind of melody at the start Yeah, and Temple Blocks over the intro. Um, there's sort of like an argument during the session where Dennis Dragon is keeping time by just clicking his sticks together and Steve Desper is saying, I'm not going to be able to get rid of that sound if you want to mute it later. And and Carl's Carl thinks it sounds bad and Brian's kind of like, oh, what do you guys think? I think it sounds okay. Brian, Brian's fine with it. He kind of he doesn't really get what they're talking about for a while, and then finally, when he realizes what they're debating, he's like, "Oh, it's fine. I don't care. Just leave it." Um, so, yeah. So um, the the temple blocks in the intro are really cool. Like just um, just the way to, just the way it starts out with these temple blocks and the hot, and the sort of quite funny sounding harmonica. It's such a unique way to begin an arrangement. It's um, so strange. Um, yeah. It's it's really. I mean, some of these songs are so simple, like back home or games two can play where it's just you know acoustics and and all that but but some of these th this track and when girls get together in particular from this era are just such unique arrangements from brian yeah he's he's just at the top of his game at the session like he's doing you know he, he's it's no less musically inventive than any of his most interesting stuff um mm -hmm. the way he puts the song together there's some extra drum parts on top of this there's like an extra snare drum and there's like a hi-hat in the in the verse, which just while while I'm on there, like there's this kind of myth that goes around every now and again that Brian doesn't like hi hats; they annoy him. And I think he he doesn't like showy drums. He doesn't like big cymbal crashes. But he uses hi hats all the time in his productions, like like in some quite unusual ways as well. He'll quite often make that kind of a key part of the arrangement. Kind of these odd hits on a hi hat, like like you know, um, airplane is one that we always think about, but. Yeah, Brian wasn't allergic to hi hats. He he liked a hi hat just in just in specific places, I guess. Yeah, there's there's a twelve string guitar played by Carl that does another nice counter melody in the intro, um, and then it has kind of a solo later on, um, and then there is, you know, just to just to talk about some of the the track. Like I I like the way it completely changes, just completely changes the, the instrumentation there. Like it's it it would have in the past probably been done in sections by Brian, but here it kind of goes from this light harmonica and temple blocks and and like you know this sort of very airy arrangement with with the 12 string and then it goes into a completely different feel in the b section with with the keyboard coming in and the drums doing these sort of heavy things on the toms and the bass comes in there as well and it's kind of interesting this song kind of has like this polka sort of feel to it like the bum 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 like i can't really think of any other brian wilson song that sounds <laughs> like this one You know who was into polka music, though? Who? Murray. Oh, inter okay. So Interesting. And I know that Murray was, was making his, or attempting to make his comeback 
around this time. So, I, I, okay, I can imagine Murray being into the music. Maybe not approving of of the lyrics of this one, but we'll get to that. Oh no, no. <laughs> but I can imagine him being some some sort of an inspiration or an influence. Yeah, maybe. Um, there's the, again that horn session they had on January 9th. This one had a whole lot of horn players playing on it. Um, this is like they used all of the musicians that, that for that session. I think this is kind of the main objective of that session was the horns on good time. There's four trumpet players, there's three trombones, and there's two French horns, and they're playing some really cool parts in the chorus. All these overlapping melodies. And this day was actually when David Sandler met Brian. He was a songwriter who had sent um, a tape to the Beach Boys just of his band to kind of I don't know get some interest and. Uh, Eventually, he met Bruce Johnston. He invited him to a few sessions, including, I think, Tears in the Morning he was there for because he was consulting on the accordion part when Bruce was having trouble with trouble with the tempo or something like that. Um, so he was kind of hanging around in the, in the periphery. Um, and he was invited up by Bruce up to this horn session f- for a few songs. And at this point, he, he met Brian for the first time and went into, I guess, Brian's office. I'm not sure what room in the house that would have been. Um, but Brian was apparently writing these horn parts out like on paper. We've we've seen some examples of Brian writing sheet music in that way, even though, you know, usually he'd sing parts to people, but he was apparently capable of just writing out scores for the musicians and since it's a short horn passage that just repeats, I guess that is plausible. Um but yeah, they were kind of like reminiscing about Beach Boys shows in like in, in the Midwest and in the winter and stuff and he said that he was blown away by Brian, Brian sort of just writing out these parts casually while they were having a conversation and they went in and recorded it and it was all these different overlapping melodies playing different things and working perfectly with the melody and it was like a completely sort of like revelatory, revelatory experience for David who was never seen Brian working in his element before and he just tossed this off so, like so casually. Yeah, this is a really incredible horn arrangement on top of what is already a really really cool sounding track yeah you know i it's i don't usually think of this as one of my favorites from the sunflower period because I typically just, you know, the more serious songs come to mind first, but this is just such a fun song. This is this is a really incredible song. Yeah, definitely. Or incredible production, more so than song. Yeah, the production. Yeah, the production does definitely elevate it a lot more than if you were just playing it like on a on a piano or a guitar. Um, but it's like it's one one like an arrangement on this one. Um, all the Beach Boys sing on it again. This is a, a pretty cool vocal arrangement, like with a six-part six harmony to accommodate everyone in the group that Brian was increasingly doing in these days just to fit everyone in. Um, mm-hmm. And Brian sings lead on it as well, which he was not doing on too many songs at this point, but he sings a great lead vocal um, that goes through quite, yes. a few different, uh, quite a few different voices in this one. Yeah, uh, his only, I guess, complete lead vocal from this era... Besides, where is she? Which is kind of not so complete. My girlfriend Betty, she's always ready to help me in any way. She do my cooking. She's always looking for ways she can make my day. 
He sounds really good on this, and um, this was held off from the Sunflower album. And uh, initially, he had American Spring redo the, the the vocals and put it on that album. And uh, some more lyrics were added, some extra parts, a, a synthesizer. Um, and then you get, you get that, that new vocal in the, in the bridge, which is instrumental in the Beach Boys version. Yeah, that, that part's fun. Yeah, that's fun. And, um, again, this was brought back for Love You, of course, remixed in, in 76 and put on that album where it, it lyrically, it kind of fits in with the material he was writing at that time. Uh, obviously his voice sounds very different. Uh, it's like a completely different artist sort of stumbles into the Love You album. Like I forget sometimes because we've you know we spent so much time with with all this stuff that I sometimes forget that it's just on the Love You album. Like as 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 it is, like just in the middle of that, you get a Sunflower song sounding so completely different. Like in just production yeah. arrangement, Brian's voice, everything. Yeah, it does kind of throw you for a loop a bit. Um, lyrically, this one <laughs> is really funny. Um, it's Brian kind of recounting all the things he likes about his various girlfriends like in, he talks about his uh, his girlfriend Betty and then the next verse he's talking about a different one which is just hilarious um, yeah it's, it's again this this was brought up by um, Patti Smith in a famous review of of, uh, of Love You where it's, it's just kind of like I don't know just such a, a very Beach Boys um, hedonistic kind of approach to the lyrics with just like um Maybe it won't last, but what do we care? We just want a good time. It's kind of the whole theme of it. And it, it sounds kind of just tossed off and, and silly, but like it's, you know, it's it, it's, it's so, like, it, it, it just captures like what they're about, I guess. It's just, it's just them having fun and, and making music that makes people happy. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very fun song. I love that line, um, <laughs> she'll do the dirty boogie and then I go up and smoke and that kind of like psychedelic almost um, keyboard comes in and it's, it's a, a trippy kind of moment. But um, Yeah, that, that sounds like an outline to me. So that's a good right, time. That's a good time. And the next one we have to talk about is uh, Carnival, um, aka Over the Waves. Um, oh boy! This was this was an Al Jardine project, and this is maybe the most Al Jardine thing he has ever done. Um, outside of the folk idiom, it is firmly in his crazy circus music sort of genre. This I, I believe this was credited to produced by Brian Wilson, but it's Brian had nothing Brian to do with this involved. thing. No. Yeah. This is purely just the classic, classic carnival music. 
Um, the loveliest night of the year and over the waves there are different titles different versions of this song that have been done over the over the centuries um but al decided to cut a track very spontaneously during the sunflower days um i think he did it in the morning before they had that horn session at brian's house but this song is just al dennis and mike which is an interesting combination of beach boys to be playing on this thing um al yeah, Al played the piano and uh, Dennis played the drums and then Mike kind of showed up to play the sleigh bells briefly. And then I, I don't think uh, Mike sang on it. I think um, Al and Dennis do all of the vocals on this thing. Um, and it was kind of built up in a stack of kind of recorded all the things in stereo to make it sound like a big band, you know, with um, organ and ukulele and piano and more percussion just played by Al and Dennis in various combinations. And then they sang the vocals which are just the same melody in like different octaves um and it's 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 a very kind of i don't know it's a it's a a kind of a nasty vocal sound yeah um not much to say about this one um something that is worth talking about is the way it was mixed at the time oh yeah they put this kind of crazy uh stereo phasing effect on it and included it on the first lineup of of sunflower as just an unlisted bonus track um and it just sounds insane it sounds so strange yeah i mean despa said that the reason he did the acetate um with the original lineup of sunflower that was used in his study video is he wanted to test it out to make sure this song wouldn't like make the grooves like make the needle bounce off the grooves and stuff because it was so sonically <laughs> extreme um but yeah there, he said the, the reason this was rejected is it was making people at the record company feel sick um so yeah what a strange combo dennis and al you don't get them together too much <laughs> yeah i guess that's all there's to say about that <laughs> i mean it was around for a while, apparently, because during the Fallen in Love session on that same tape, they did like a sort of rough version of this with a, with, a, with an organ and them singing the same same melody. And then there's like a, a Mystery FM contract for May 1969 for a session um, with the title What Can the Matter Be, which is, a, which is a song that has the same melody as Carnival. So I don't know if there's like a lost early version of this that maybe yeah, Alice stole I mean, away somewhere in his barn. <laughs> yeah, it's not a tape that that's in the archive, so... Mm. Very curious. Um, so continuing the theme of Al's, like, crazy circus music, and um, now we have a full production of Take a Load Off Your Feet. Uh, they finally record it on January 17th. It was the final new song to be started for the original... Uh, lineup of Sunflower. Um, and do you want to talk about the session of this? Because it's a very interesting session. Yeah, it's a very interesting session. So, um, Al mainly wrote this song um, with his old old buddy Gary Winfrey. Um, but Brian was also a, a, a contributor um, musically and lyrically. And I think... Uh, did he get credit for the arrangement as well, or was it just the music and lyrics? I can't remember. Anyways, um, the session was at Brian's house, and it was just Al and 
Brian playing everything together uh, with Carl sort of producing from the booth and, and giving feedback on how everything sounds. And um, so the basic track for this was Al strumming his acoustic, um, just doing a rhythm. And Brian was handling all of the percussion at once. Um, so they had evidently practiced this a bit and planned out where all the hits were. And I, I, I feel like this is probably something that came mostly from Brian. Um, but according to, I believe Steve Desper said that they had these, these, uh, big glass containers of water. Yeah. These big glass water bottles. Al said the same thing as well. Um, yeah. So you get all these dinging sounds and these like, uh, clinks throughout it. Yeah, so so all all live on the same track, uh Brian was was hitting those um and you know, pitched in a certain way, filled with a certain amount of water. Um he was hitting a drum with the mallet, uh mainly in the verse, and then he also in the bridge um played a whole bunch of temple blocks which got a live um uh, sort of delay effect um from Steve Desper or or Carl, um, really, really, really fun, uh, to imagine what that could have looked like. Yeah. With just Al sitting there in the chair and Brian surrounded by all this percussion that he was handling at once, which he didn't have to. And, you know, in the era of 16 track, each of those could have been an overdub. Yeah. It's, but... it's made more interesting <laughs> just by the fact that he did all of this like at once. I'm telling you, Brian at this time was, was, I think having fun being a musician. Yeah. More so really than was. other eras. Uh, he was really playing everything uh, drums, percussion, every keyboard, bass, guitar. He was playing sandals as well in this song. He played the sandals. Um, the sandals, yeah. Yeah. He so, played that, that instrument on When Girls Get Together, possibly. Uh, he was all over the place. Um, so let's talk about the overdubs because there's a lot of fun stuff going on in this song. Yeah, so so there's a great organ part. It sounds like almost like a car horn. It's a very it's uh, Brian played the organ on. Uh, it was this bullpen organ again. Um, that, 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 it's a really nice part with some cool sort of like melody lines. Um, the bass would have been either I guess Al or Brian. Not really sure. Um, it's just a normal sounding bass part. But then I think the most interesting thing about this is all the percussion and sound effects. Uh, there's this kind of scraping percussion throughout the song, um, which is famously Brian on top of the garage of his house in some sandals, kind of shuffling around on, on, the, on the asphalt, uh, sorry, asphalt garage roof. Um, just kind of shuffling to rhythm as, as percussion. He was skipping around in circles, scraping his feet, which is such a great image. Um, that's, you know, you've, you've seen photos of them outside like um, on top of the, the, I guess it was kind of Brian's informal garage roof, uh, but they also used it to record drums and vocals and things out there. And there are some photos of it, but that's where he was. He was up just mic'd in a circle, shuffling around <laughs> the percussion. Um, it's such a fun image. I love that. Yeah, fun images on this one. Um, okay, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a car horn throughout this that was Brian's Rolls Royce. I don't know if he was behind the wheel or not, but there was uh, it was his car that was mic'd from, it was very loud obviously, so they stood on the roof of the house and mic'd it from down there. 
in the distance. There's uh, a cereal bowl being scraped around for these these nice percussive sounds, and there's also like the um, when you get to the lyric or stepping on a piece of glass, there's um, the sound of something smashing, and that was apparently um, Brian just chucking like a china plate like against uh, some stepping stones, like he's just smashing Marilyn's plates, which he was not very happy about, but he was, you know, take after take, just chucking these plates to get them to break. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that was in- insane, but so fun. And um, that's all there is to this track pretty much. There's some strings on this that were done again in that big string session we talked about. They had some time at the end and they were, they just did it. A few violinists stayed behind to play on this thing. And they just um, added some nice sort of pizzicato plucking parts throughout it, and then a nice cant melody in the fade that sort of plays off the organ. And that's the track. That's the track. And um, the vocals. Um, this is another one where there are there's an unused lead vocal in part of the song. So, um, of course, we have uh, Al singing most of the song. We also get Brian singing that intro. That first verse and the um, the bridge. If you listen to the alternate mix on the Feel Flows box set, you get this really funny like spoken word yeah. verse from Brian. I love that. Now, if you wanna do the right thing for him, just take a walk in the, the the backing vocals. I think um, only a few of the Beach Boys sing on this one, including Brian L. I think maybe Colin Bruce. Um, very again silly sounding back in vocals but they're kind of wobbling their throats and stuff to sing Take a Lot Off Your Feet um, everyone was aware of how goofy this song was it was apparently a thing where like it was kind of a running joke where they would be working on another song and at the end of the day they were like let's add something else to feet like let's just do it um, yeah <laughs> there was also an unused um, little picked guitar intro uh which came back as a melody in the string arrangement. Oh yeah, that plays out in the fade. It's kind of just a goofy little intro, but then they then they not... utilized all those all those musicians to kind of make that a part of the of the fade out. I didn't remember that. That's yeah, nice. Yeah, this is a song that they that was part of the rejected version of Sunflower, and they they didn't include it on the final version, but they did bring it back. And remix it and add a whole bunch of effects for the uh, the Surf's Up album, which yeah. is where it came out. I, I forget sometimes because, again, it's like good time. I forget that this was just on Surf's Up. Like it was of all the Sunflower outtakes that they could have included. Um, <laughs> and this is yeah, a, a very funny thing to compare interviews with um, because, you know, Jack Riley did some interviews, um, some email interviews with fans in the late 90s where he was, you know, doing kind of, kind of these Q, this Q&A thing. And he frequently throughout it characterizes Mike Allen Bruce as like, just like the demons, they're like evil and anti-creative and, and they represent a commercial power and stuff and they're all creatively bankrupt. He was, he, he sort of developed a very strong anti anyone but the Wilsons agenda for that and he said while well, talking about the Surf's Up album that Al demanded his feet song go on the album and everyone was like embarrassed by it and hanging their heads and stuff going oh no what are we doing but then you know Jack Riley is infamously not so great with the truth um, in an Al interview from a similar sort of time he was asked about that song and he was like I have no idea why that was on an album I think Jack Riley said oh that's an ecology song 
and I, it's got to go on the album and I was like what ecology and he was like yeah it's t- kept taking care of your feet it's personal ecology and I was like all right then but you see <laughs> and I kind of dismissed it as being ridiculous but it's so it, it apparently wasn't Al's call to get this pro surfs up but it's kind of funny to have them back to back So January 27th over in the UK, while all the Sunflower stuff's going on, EMI have, I think, just gotten impatient with the Beach Boys saying like, you know, we've they've been waiting for an album since, well, like May last year, and the Beach Boys just never delivered it because their contracts expired with Capital and they're like, we don't need to do anything about that. We can just, you know, leave them hanging forever. So so they've, they've gone back with their own feed of the London shows from um, the fall of 68 or December, I can't remember exactly when it was, and they like mix this live in London album just without the Beach Boys knowing um, I think the Beach Boys called it like an official bootleg or something because they just didn't know that this thing was taking place but basically yeah that EMI in the UK um, are just like assembling this this cut of the second show at the London um, Palladium was it? this show? or was it? oh I don't know um, one of the shows was there um, but this was at a different venue yeah the Beach Boys back in I guess early 1969, we're working on this live album that they recorded in December of 68. And they did a whole bunch of edits. They added some extra instruments and vocals. Um, They did a whole bunch of post-production like they had done on the uh, 64 concert album. Uh, But the Live in London album that got released is just one of the the shows uh, with a few edits. Um, So it actually is completely live. Like Will said, it was done without the Beach Boys' knowledge. Yeah, I'm just checking now. This is December 8th, 1968. Um, it was Finsbury Park, and it was the second show of the night. Right. And that's basically, like, the album is just that show. like, Which is great, and it's a great uh, great live album. I really like the version of Aren't You Glad. Um, I think that they sing... Aren't You Glad's great. Probably, like, the best live version of God Only Knows on there as yeah, well. Yeah, Carl is really great on this on this album. Um, and Mike is annoying as usual. <laughs> um, what else was I going to say about it? I guess not much. Should probably just focus on Sunflower now. Yeah, the, I mean, they finally released it in May. We'll get to that. But I'm just like thinking about that album. Years ago, I was I was at a friend's house, like in his garage. He had like a sort of like den in there, and. It's going through, going through all this like his parents' record collection, and there was like no Beach Boy stuff in there. Um, I think this is only like when I was first starting to get into the group, and then like randomly in the middle of it, there was this live album that I'd never heard of before, and put that on, and like it was it was really good. But like just thinking back now, it's like so strange that like, like he had live in London for some for like no other Beach Boys things. Um, yeah, I just remember. Yeah, that. I, I remember. <laughs> so anyway, um, I remember growing up and being really into the Beach Boys and trying to find more of their music and. I was digging through my dad's things and there was this cassette that was part the 64 concert album and part live in London. So, Oh, cool. Kind of similar stories there, but yeah, that was, um, I guess one of the first, it wasn't even a real album, you know, it was one of those reissue cassettes where they just kind of loaded a couple songs from a few different albums together. And yeah, you know, in hindsight, those, those earlier live recordings sound nothing like these uh these newer ones and they really don't mesh but 
yeah, it was it was one of the first few Beach Boys things I heard outside of just the hits collections. Just carrying on then, yeah. So so well that's happened in the UK back in Beach Boy Land. I'm completely oblivious to this. They're finally sort of they finished with with the Sunflower album. Um soon after that big string session and then from January 8th over the next few days they start to mix all the songs um, some of them are done at Valentine Studios and some are done at the house for the first time which is because Carl wanted to start doing mix downs at the house like they'd be, been using Molly Hyder for stuff in the fall so they want, they built a reverb chamber at the home studio to be able to do these mixes um, and that was like the show first quarters um, beneath the garage or like the the, the the deck of the roof where they did some recordings it was beneath there and they kind of built this thing so they could do the mix downs there and i just like the i, I like the the note from Desper. The, that's where brian would often go for a nap the, the echo chamber um so they had that now and that's where they that's where they did mixed all these songs um february 6th they recorded the Susie cincinnati car special effects which was Desper's mercedes in the driveway revin um, then they mixed the Arts and Music and Susie Cincinnati single. Um, and then on February 18th, that's when we have a date for a test pressing of the album, the Desper Cut at Artisan Sound. And this isn't the Sunflower album that ended up, ended up being released. This is like version one of Sunflower. It's get, it gets called out Arts and Music in some circles, but it was always called Sunflower, um, like originally. The whole, the whole story behind the album title is Carl had these like logos of different seeds and stuff and sunflower seeds and he liked this the sort of the colors of this one and brian was in a health food at the time and he thought it was a good idea and then that's kind of the whole theme of the album um came out of that but it was definitely called sunflower at that point and that's what it originally was it's like it's written on this test press and that's what they wanted it to be called but in the track lineup at this point um i'll go through it it's it's side one started with Susie cincinnati then Good Time, then Our Sweet Love, then Tease in the Morning, then Wills, When Girls Get Together, then Slip On Through is the side closer, and then side two has Add Some Music, Take A Lot Off Your Feet, which has Carnival as like a hidden track ending, This Whole World, I Just Got My Pay, At My Window, and Fallen In Love. And this is the album that the Beach Boys were like almost about to release in 1970. Um, what do you think about this thing? Um... You know, I, I like all the songs included, or most of the songs included, but it is a very light album. I can see why uh, Warner kind of had them go back to it. Um, I mean, you get Fallen in Love, which is like a really nice um, closer to the album. Uh, but the rest is kind of, you know, a lot of this stuff is just kind of, um, it's almost too on the on the goofy side. Yeah, I mean, you have like I just got my pay, at my window, good time, um, all on the same album. Susie Cincinnati. It's it it's it's almost like, it's, less serious than any other Beach Boys album, so far. Yeah, I really can't imagine how people would have reacted to this if they like they released it, because it's like there's a good set of songs on there, but the sequence is like so. Yeah, there's kind of a lack of, big songs. I mean, we're gonna get to you know an album where we have forever and all i want to do and cool cool water all on it and there's kind of um a lack of that here yeah it, it feels like we've, sort of, we've gone through like these months of like all this exciting creativity and positivity and stuff from everyone and then you kind of look at like the list of songs and it's like oh oh that's it like really and the sequencing as well i think is the it, it's it's like it's just shuffle like 
It does. It does feel like that. Yeah, it's like it's like first track of the the new album for the new decade and a new label, and you open it with like Susan Cincinnati and a good time. <laughs> it's 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 such a strange like it's it's such a strange track order, and then you call this whole world is like buried in the middle of track like side two. I mean, it's between take a lot off your feet slash carnival and like I just got my pay is why you experience this whole world, and it just takes like so much. I don't know, like if it's it's a. It has no flow to it in the way like all the albums that were sequenced by Brian do. Yeah, and it's very weirdly heavy on the Jardine. It is, yeah. A bit he's too, a, a, bit too he's heavy. a co-writer on six of these 12 songs, seven if you count Carnival. Wow. That's... Or at least he's a producer of that one. And it's, yeah, it's very, it's very strange going from even 2020, um, which is also kind of seen as a, a mess in some ways. Yeah, and the outtakes of this as well. I mean, the, the outtakes from these sessions, to think the songs that they didn't include in this would have been Games 2 Can Play, Back Home, and Where Is She? And the, all the all Brian songs, you know, three more Brian songs would have at least given it sort of more co- cohesion than it has, but I mean, you've got it mixed up with like all the Al stuff, like all the silliest Al stuff is on here. And you've got Tears, sort of like one of the first things you hear. It's 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 unusual. Like, you know, side one goes through like Our Sweet Love and Tears in the Morning and When Girls Get Together. Like everyone listened to that that Warner Brothers probably probably would have fallen asleep. <laughs> yeah. I definitely recommend making this as a playlist and just sort of listening to it as an alternate reality of what Sunflower almost could have been. Um it's it's very weird. Yeah, and if you just like reshuffle this to what the final Sunflower was, but like with replacing it songs with like the ones that are on here that they didn't release so like it becomes a much better album immediately just by having like slip on through as the music this whole world at the top of the album um but yeah this is like it's, it's yeah. completely you you get why this didn't happen but kind of interestingly it seems like for, for like a few months it wasn't like a situation where warner brothers heard this and were like no go back to the drawing board it seems like they had plans to release this album like as is for quite a long time and then it wasn't until later in the year that they decided like eventually that they're not going to put this out and they wanted the Beach Boys to go back and do more. So we'll, we'll get to that, but... Um, <laughs> so, so on February 23rd, the Outer Music slash Susie Cincinnati single was released. There are some mock-up sleeves from the Warner Brothers art department um, where the album had the title, Outer Music, but that seems like a brief thing that was to tie in with the single and then they they went back to the Sunflower um, title after the single flopped and did absolutely nothing. You know, the thing about the single is apparently it was like the most, like, the the most orders of of records that Reprise like ever ever did for an artist or something like that. They 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 got so much of this prepared and then it's just like it got like no airplay at all. Like, just no one wanted to play this because there's the there's the well told Fred Vale story of him trying to promote this thing and being told the Beach Boys aren't hip anymore. No, I'm not going to play it. Um, and you kind of, I mean, it's. It is sad, but at the same time, like, why would the f- the first foot on this new label in the nineteen seventy be add some music with, back with Susan Cincinnati? Like, it should have just been this whole world slip on through. Yeah, it's it's one of the one of the great missteps they ever did with their single choice. Yeah, it, it it I know some people have called it behind the times. It almost seems a little bit ahead of the times. Um, I mean, the Beach Boys have been out of step with all the music that was really at the forefront of popular culture since Smiley Smile. Um, but everything they did kind of got bigger later. Um, this really sounds like a lot of soft pop that would 
come out of like the mid seventies. It does, um, yeah. And it may have done well in some other year, but nineteen seventy was not the year for this song, or or really this song was not the 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 song for nineteen seventy. And they, I I agree, they should have released this whole world or or something else in its place as their big debut. Maybe put some more thought into you know what would be a commercial song. Yeah, I mean, this is like the like the compl- like the absolute low point of their popularity. Like they've never got more obscure than like the end of '69, early '70, when they put the single yeah. out, and it was just like the wrong thing for it. Um, but anyway, they had to go out and, and promote the single, so they went they went on like a short tour up in um, like around Seattle and Canada. And well, so so Mike was kind of recovering from his episode, shall we say. Um, so Brian actually went out on tour with with everyone for four days and played like about seven shows, I think. Um, this is the first time since Hawaii in 67 he went on the road. Um, it's the first mm-hmm. time since 65 that I guess he did like an extended few series of shows. Or maybe 64, I can't remember how much he went back out on 65 without Glenn. Um, Not too much, but he did do a few the, short um, little tours to replace Bruce or Glenn here and there. Yeah, yeah, but but these are like the first ever Beach Boys shows, like with no Mike but with Brian, which is such an interesting dynamic, and not a lot's been written about them. Um, you know, Brian said that he was like he, he it was the best four days of his life or something like that at one time, and then there's also an account by I think it was with a poor reviewer and the Raiders that were supporting them, um, and someone from from them remembered Brian kind of having a like a nervous breakdown after one of these shows and like kind of rolling up this like scrolling up this embankment on a grassy hill and think screaming that people were like following him or something and Marilyn had to kind of like come and calm him down or I don't know how true that is but um yeah mixed messages about how well Brian managed to deal with this situation yeah but you can hear one of the shows someone like there's an audience recording like a really really bad quality audience recording from one of the shows in Seattle um it's really hard to make out who's singing the quality's not like not very good at all but you can hear there's some like very interesting things in there like add some music is played live and brian sings all of mike's lead vocals on that one um which is really cool he sounds good doing it as well i think anyway because you can't eat it's, it's so grainy um do it again i think brian and Carl sing that one together and then brian's doing like his original bridge part and wouldn't it be nice and stuff it's pretty cool and bruce is bruce and carl and, and mike and Sorry, no, Bruce and Carl and Brian and Al are all sort of dividing up Mike's box in different ways. Because when you think about the way the band has changed over the years, I mean, even until now, Mike is the, you know, the one unchanging part of the of the touring group. Um, yeah, I think I, you know I would love to go back in time and see one of these shows just to hear Brian sing the parts that that Mike is usually known for, um, or just to see him at all. I mean, 
to see the Beach Boys in 1970 and Brian Wilson is there was probably a shock to a few people in the audience who knew about him and and what they should expect to see at a Beach Boys concert. Um, I wonder if, if, you know, any huge fans were just, you know, blown blown away by seeing Brian Wilson on stage after he hadn't been on the road for so many years. It's Yeah, I, I, I wish there was more of this. I wish, wish there was photos of it. I wish there was more audio, but... That's such a, and it was like a, the fact that it was like seven shows over like a four day stretch as well. And like he was getting on a plane to go to it. It's, it's a big thing that's sort of just like happened and, and like was forgotten about. Um, but everyone mentions it like in interviews that year, they say that Brian was back with them for a few days and it was great. And he was apparently wanted to go to Australia with them when they went in April, but his, he didn't manage to get a passport in time for it. Cause he's like not traveled in so long that his passport expired or something. And he, couldn't come with them but that's pretty interesting that he, he actually wanted to go with them all the way to australia like it that's that's another real, reality to think about if brian became like a proper like member of like a of the touring group again for a long tour overseas in 1970 like that's a thing that almost happened if brian hadn't let his passport expire yeah that would have been crazy <laughs> yeah so so like they have this time they have this break between those shows um from like March through to most of April that they're at home not a lot of activity here but like Carl keeps working with the flame on their album at Brian's house Capital already in the Cotton uh, the Cottonfield single to release um and Disco Music Echo kind of like interviewed some of the group around this time and I think this is why Dennis's famous quote about where's Brian Wilson he says look around you he's everywhere <laughs> you know because he didn't show up for the for the interview um and then they're talking about the the upcoming coming Sunflower album and at this point it's set for release in in May, and it it's still got the original lineup of songs, so it hasn't been rejected by Warner Brothers yet, and they've got fans to release this. It's like I'm not sure what happened and how these events all unfolded behind the scenes. Um, it also mentions that Dennis Wilson's going to do a solo album, which is the first time I've seen that in the press come up. Um, so that's pretty cool. And then from April 18th through to the middle of May, they went on a tour of New Zealand and Australia, um, which we're bringing up because there is um, like a recently unearthed letter from Murray's personal assistant to Brian about uh, some stuff that went down in Australia here. Yeah. So um, Murray was again, trying to sort of wiggle his way back into the management role he used to have. Um, and he insisted on going to Australia with the beach boys to, um, sort of watch their shows and give feedback, um, which is really strange at this point in time, considering how long it's been since he did that. Um, I think it, you know, I think the last time he really did that was th their other Australian tour in 1964. So yeah, he accompanied them, and his assistant wrote Brian this letter. It says, Dear Brian, Sorry that we were not able to complete our telephone conversation today. Your father said for me to put a few of his thoughts down in a letter to you, some of the things he told the fellows while he was in Australia, and I wanted to add a few things that have occurred to me over the past four years. Your father feels that Nick sent him over to Australia as a patsy to try and... Sorry, I should give some more context for this. Uh, Nick Grillo, their manager, was also involved with getting Murray over to Australia and sort of getting his feedback on what the Beach Boys were doing at the time, just based on Murray's experience managing them in the past. <clears throat> okay, back to the letter. 
<laughs> Your father feels that Nick sent him over to Australia as a patsy to try and get the fellows back in gear. Of course, he knew this and went because of his concern for you, for you all, and the great love that he feels for each of you. Sorry, it's just, it's so weird to have an assistant writing this, like, about Murray. Like, it's, it gets worse as it goes on. It gets really funny. <laughs> <laughs> we could not believe the sloppy habits that the Beach Boys have gotten into. They are so far away from the sound on their records. They dilly-dally on stage and do not put out an honest effort. Dennis is too loud, which he told him many times on the tour. He waited for the proper time, and then, as I told you on the telephone, he gave them a 49-minute lecture about where they failed and things they were doing wrong, including Bruce, <laughs> Al, and Mike. He made the sound better when they were on the Chevron stage and told them to each get on the microphones. Mike is sick with bad habits. Dennis was amazed when he tried that he did not have to play so loud and sounded better when they worked together as a group. Yeah, the 49-minute... <laughs> I like how specific that is. It's such a funny deal. It's like, it just sounds like, did Murray have a personal assistant? Did he write this? Did did, did he pretend that like... His, yeah, I don't know what Did his, he pretend that this was someone else writing? Like, it just sounds like Murray's wording. Well, this is like a, a female assistant, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I like too much and Murray was like, just putting on like a, putting on a voice on the phone, pretending to to, to be this person, <laughs> but like, it's, it's, it's such, it's so bizarrely worded. I mean... Like he he gave them a forty nine minute lecture about why they failed. Um, he made the sound better when they were on the stage. Like, and it's just kind of this like this Murray miracle praise thing. Um, and then okay, so the next part goes. Your dad put them on notice that they're all in serious deep uh, deep serious trouble, and you all have to go to work so you won't lose everything. He praised them all, each in a different way. Told them how great they could be if they all pulled together and be more honest in their personal lives as well as their business lives. Which is the same thing that Murray's constantly saying in like the Help Me Ronda tape and the famous sixty five letter that he didn't send Brian. It's, it's you know it, it's such a like I can't get over that this is exists and this like this assistant writing. He praised them all in a different way and and like told them how that he could fix them all. And it's like written to Brian after a telephone conversation about the same thing on the same day. This group of people are freaks. Like they <laughs> this is like psychologically <laughs> just just unhinged. Um, but I think that the really interesting thing we've only got the first page of this letter. By the way, this is several pages long letter. It's in one of the hard rock cafes. Um, it was found by someone on the on the Endless Harmony forum who posted it. Um, and he says, the Beach Boys are going to come back stronger with ego, better morale, and they want to take direction because they're tired of not having leadership. And then this is, I think this is the really interesting part. It says they, they admitted that they've been overpro overproducing their records. They felt badly that you quit writing and they lost confidence. It took the wind out, out of their sails because they lost their leader. They can't understand why you don't pitch in and show your tremendous talent. I mean, this is like the only thing we've got from like the time of them of sort of a, an acknowledgement of Brian taking this big sabbatical from being the leader of the Beach Boys, you know, his retreat from during the 2020 sessions where we can see it in the work that they make, but there's no sort of explicit at the time. Nobody talks about it in the press that Brian must have had some sort of big conversation with them at the time and said, like, look, I'm not doing this anymore. You guys take over. And even though he's been kind of yeah. like back with the group for a while through the Sunflower period, um, this, it's it's just like fascinating to see them like actively talking about it at the time um it, it's, it's weird yeah. to see it acknowledged yeah because it's it's sort of mm. this unspoken thing um yeah anyways this letter is very strange i i don't think that it was written only by his assistant i'm sure it was dictated right over the shoulder by murray wilson himself 
Yeah. Um, and then we've got this final bit on the first page. It hurt Dennis most of all because he loves you. You will never know just how much he does love you. And he needs your help with his writing. He gets lost in melodies and they go on and on when he should condense them. That's that's definitely Murray dictated word for word. Like, you can you imagine the assistant telling Brian that Dennis <laughs> needs help because his melodies should be condensed and they go on and on. He's got a point, but, you know, it's that's a, that's a, <laughs> a funny thing to include in a sort of like heartfelt letter about how like the group are going downhill. Dennis's melodies are just, they go on and on, yeah. you know, you've got to sort them out. Um, Help Dennis write his songs. <laughs> can you imagine if Murray was there for Pacific Ocean Blue? He would have, like, he could have used Murray's help on Bamboo. He would have fixed cocktails, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is a really strange portion of Beach Boys history. Um, while in Australia, we should mention, they also put together this strange film Um I don't think you've seen it, but I've seen it. Oh, um, I haven't seen it. You've seen it, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, it's just a really strange comedy film. It makes no sense, but half of it is just footage of the Beach Boys in concert, which is pretty cool. Um, I hope it finds its way, you know, I don't see how it would be released. The Beach Boys refused to release it at the time because they were so embarrassed by it. <laughs> so I, I don't think it will... Oh, you know, wow. Get some, to, I've, some I've sort got of to feature. see this now. <laughs> but it's, it's not like, it's not like so bad it's funny kind of thing. It's just kind of painful to sit through. Um, there's like, oh. it, the whole thing is just kind of, it follows these two characters that aren't even the Beach Boys and they're just painfully unfunny. And, <laughs> you know, the rest of it, 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 it's almost like an attempt at the, at the Beatles movies, like the Richard Lester but um, Oof. but the uh, the concert portions are cool, and I don't I don't really see any of what Murray's talking about with, you know, the dilly dallying. <laughs> I mean, they sound fine. They sound like they always do. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, oh, I've got to watch that. Um, so, so yeah, um, while while this tour's going on, we've kind of like fast forwarded through it a little bit. But on um, April twentieth, the Cotton Field single was released. That was recorded like in August last year. It took a inexplicable long time for this to come out and it did quite well in Europe I think I don't have the chart stats in front of me um, but yeah that was kind of riding up the charts while they were about to launch a thing on a new label which was an odd situation to be in um, and while the group are in New Zealand and Australia this is where Brian decides to take on a project to produce an album for Fred Vale of country music um, which I think at some point we'll have to do an episode that's like we promised to do it like in the next one a few episodes ago, but I think we'll do a proper episode that's like Stephen Kalinich and Fred Vale and all the other side projects that will happen at a time. But um, yeah, it's this thing where Brian, Brian just called up Fred Vale and, uh, and was like, hey, do you want to... I think Diane called him up and said, Brian wants to do a country album with you. And he was like, well, what? And then that it sort of became a thing where <laughs> they sort of went through selecting songs that <laughs> hadn't been... <laughs> you know, Brian doesn't know anything about country music. He's sort of some influences in his work around this time. But basically they were sort of like choosing cover songs and songs from unknown songwriters for Fred to go in and record. And they got an arranger and they got all these country musicians to play, some of whom Brian had worked with before, but a lot of them were guys Fred chose because he knew the genre. And then they just, they say it was like five sessions at Wally Heights to do this thing. They cut like 15 tracks. And it sort of just like, Brian sort of just like let it go and he didn't really follow up on it. I think he lost interest quite quickly and apparently 
Linda Ronstadt was in the studio next door and he was much more interested in whatever she was doing than, than the Fred sessions. Um, yeah, this is, this is a straight, it's called, it's been called cows in the pasture, um, in like fan things. But Fred Vale years ago said that like, you know, we never had a title for it. I don't know where this cows in the pasture things come from, but I, I think one of the reasons we're not going to talk too much about it is because there's apparently like a documentary in the works. I mean, I know there's a documentary in the works. I've talked to the guy who's, who's making it. Um, about this thing and they're, they're trying Fred's been trying to, to get funds to finish this album going for years like you know put vocals and all of it I think he did only did like a few guide vocals at the time um, and it was described as a four part docudrama I'm very intrigued to see what that is going to be but hopefully in the next like couple yeah. of years we're going to see something come out of this like a documentary and the album finally released um, finished with modern editions by Fred because you know it's his work it's not really like you can say you can't add to it and do what he wants. It's basically a Fred Vale album that Brian happened to be in the booth um, calling the takes for. Um, but um, yeah, so let's, fingers crossed that comes out and then when it does, we can kind of go back and do a, a thing about it. Um, Fred sort of, his retrospective on the reason Brian was doing this is because he felt like he wanted to be Brian Wilson, the producer again, like in control of a session with these session musicians and kind of like, he wanted to go back to being the boss, but he kind of given up his role in the Beach Boys and then it was hard to get that back because everyone else had their own stuff and Brian wasn't pushy. So this is kind of like an opportunity for him to kind of like be the old Brian again. But I think once he got into it, he realized he was out of his depth and he didn't know this music. There's, um, I think that it's the, it's all for the love of a girl. There's a track that was kind of previewed and you can find like a recording of it on YouTube and it just sounds like a sort of normal confidently done and Fred has a he had a good voice at the time um I think it was described as a, a far out Johnny Cash um type voice and he he sounds good but yeah it doesn't sound like any Brian music it just sounds like a confidently done well-played country track with with Fred singing and it's not much to do with his music yeah really really strange story there um especially Brian trying to get back into his old self um and ironically making music that's much further away uh, from his music than what he was doing with the Beach Boys, which obviously was his music. Um, really looking forward to that documentary if that actually ends up being, uh, you know, finished and released. Yeah, I hope so. Um, well, that's going on as well. Murray's in the studio with um, his group, The Snow, which we, we recorded a thing about. I think, did I put it on Patreon? Maybe you did. I'm not sure. But anyway... Murray's been working with this group called, um, formerly called The Parade, which he renamed The Snow, and it's kind of like his Sunrise Part 2 sort of group, but they never ended up being released at, at the time. So he did a few tracks in 69, and then he, he did some more in 70 with this song that he's written called So Much In Love, which George Faulkner did a really, really good version of on his Murray um, album. And uh, so April 23rd, this thing's recorded, it's arranged by Ray Ken. Um, and Murray does a mix of it this day and then he includes this spoken message sort of offering it to the Beach Boys um, I don't know, like George Faulkner showed us this thing and it's, it's fascinating it's, it's Murray, I guess this would have been just before he got sent out to Australia by Nick Grillo he's offering this song that he's written to the Beach Boys and saying, you know, it's not in, not in your style but I think you could do a good job of it and then he's like he adds this note that it's like if anything happens to me, like it would be good if you recorded to it. It's like it's like guilting them into it by implying that he's going to die soon. Yeah, um, I don't know what was going on with Murray's health at the time, 
he did die pretty young a few years later. Um, yeah. And Billy Hinchy described him as, um, like, not looking very well at the, uh, you know, at a concert in 73. But, um, yeah, very, very weird manipulative message here. And obviously the Beach Boys did not record this song, but Murray continued to attempt, make attempts at, um, you know, sort of breakaway part two over the next few years before he passed. Yeah. Yeah, and the melody of this song kind of became, um, it, it's kind of when you tell me ish, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, it, you know, it, it, it is sort of like that song, which uh, would be written by Brian and Murray the next year. Yeah, it's a, it's a good song. It's a, it's maybe probably not right for the Beach Boys, but like you hear what George Faulkner did with it. It's, it's actually it's one of Murray's best songs. Yeah, Murray was kind of getting into this soft pop, you know, sort of association kind of music. It is a nice song, and it, it does sort of fit in with, um, or at least if if they had done a version that, say, Brian arranged, it could have fit in with some of this softer sunflower material, but nothing ever came of it. One more thing on his message tape, he calls himself uh, Reggie Dingleberry, which is pretty fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there's one more song, one more loose end from this era that I didn't write down in the notes that I've just remembered off the top of my head right now because you mentioned Billy Hinchy. Um, Brian wrote a song for Dino, Desi and Billy at this point. Um, I think it was like their last single that they released called Lady Love. And the story behind this is um, Pops Hinchy, Billy's dad, has been sort of bugging Brian for years. So, you know, when are you going to write a song for Dino, Desi and Billy? And then Brian... You know, long after they'd kind of the group had stopped doing much stuff, he came out of um, Brian called up Billy and said, "You know, I think I've come up with a song that would be good for you." So he wrote with he wrote the song with them in mind. And Billy went over to his house and Brian played it to him on the upright piano, and it's a really good song. It's, I mean, from what Billy said, he um, did a nice version on his Billy Show uh, live stream, which was him playing it at the keyboard, which, which would be nice. I'll see if I can find that because it's more like what Brian would have played than the sort of beatles version that they released. Um, and according to Billy, Brian pretty much wrote this whole song and Billy just chimed in with a few lyrics. And it's, it's a really nice song. It's, it's sort of a lost hidden gem. I make up so good song yeah i mean i I don't really seek it out so much because like you said it doesn't sound much like brian's music um just the arrangement but it is um it is a neat song it's it's the one and only brian wilson billy hinchico right which is pretty cool as well yeah um i mean it would be nice to hear a a beach boys version of it but i kind of like the way billy sings it a lot too 
Me too. I mean, remember, I don't think we even brought this up, but they were trying to replace Bruce with Billy in 1969 at some point in the year. They kind of went over to his house and offered him a That's replacement right. the group without Bruce's knowledge, very interestingly. And then Billy declined because he was, you know, he was a full-time student and um, he just didn't want to get into the whole being a beach yeah. boy thing. It's, uh, which is, you know, he's it's quite nice and humble of him to turn it down to do his film studies and then you know, he uh, <laughs> did that, that questionable film. <laughs> <laughs> he did make the wise choice of just sort of being a Beach Boys sideman for many years. Uh, most of his life, really. And he did yeah. do some films on the Beach Boys. But, but yeah, but Billy was... Brian seems like... It seems like Brian was always trying to get Billy in the Beach Boys. You know, there's that 76 Paul Powers interview where he's... You know, he gave him the vocal on Honking Down the Highway and Money Money. And he tells Bob Harris, you know, and Billy Hinchy, who's in the Beach Boys. He kind of adds that aside when he's listening to players on the album. Uh, I think Brian really, really liked Billy and liked yeah, his I voice. feel I like he meant the touring well. group. But... <laughs> yeah, no, he was, he was going yeah. through. He was going through the touring group, and he like gets to. He's listing them all off, and then when he, when he gets to Billy, he kind of adds the note. Oh, and Billy's in the Beach Boys, you know. Because I think he wanted him to properly be a member of the group at the time, like more than a sideman. But Billy sort of never bit that because he realized it would have been like entering like the the, the viper's nest of like insanity and he you know he chose this the 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 path of not getting into all the beach boys craziness yeah um yeah this this, this would have been so good as a beach boys song though i can really hear it with like a carl o'brien lead vocal i mean preferably brian but you know um it's got such a distinctive brian wilson melody it's also kind of beatly in places um it would have it, they really would have fit with the era and the songs that they were doing at the time and it's as i I think it's a shame that it was given away, but it's a nice story behind it anyway. Neat little song. All right, back to the Beach Boys. Good melody. Yeah, so the the Beach Boys uh, took some time off um, after their Australian shows, and I got back towards the end of May. That month, Live in London was released in the UK. I'm not sure the Beach Boys actually knew that it had been put out at the time. Um, Once back home, Bruce was interviewed uh, for the NME, and he talked about their new album plans. And at the time, this is where his comment about the fading rock group revival comes from. He said that having two, they have two albums that are going to be released: the fading rock group revival on Capital and Sunflower. Or he says Sunflowers out on Warner Reprise, but they haven't sorted out a British distribution deal yet, which is the reason that it's kind of been going slow. So at this point, it seems like the original Sunflower they're still planning to put it out. Um, and then over the coming weeks, in June, they prepare a single of Slip On Through Back With This Whole World, which should have just been the, you know, the first single on the label anyway earlier in the year. And it's good that they finally made a, a good choice for a single, although I think it was kind of a little too late and lack of promotion for this one killed it. Um, June 19th, they finally assemble that album that they owed capital that they were supposed to get done a year earlier. And most of this album was actually done a year earlier and they just didn't mix it and assemble it for whatever reason. They were really drag their feet on getting around to this thing um and this this would have been either called reverberation or the last the, the fading rock group revival which is such a great title i wish they'd use that in some way um the, the track list on this one it was side one was cotton fields which would have been the single the mono single and duophonic loop de loop all i want to do there was a mono mix of got another woman on here with a slightly different lead vocal um End of side one, for some reason, an instrumental mix of When Girls Get Together. You know, we talked about how it might have started as an instrumental, but even then it was kind of with the new batch of Sunflower songs. It wasn't recorded with the Capital stuff, so it's, it's, it's very unusual that it was here when they were going to release that on the 
on the Sunflower album at the same time on, on Mourners. Um, side 2 opens with Breakaway, the single mix. I think one of us said at one point that it was a different mix on this, but it's not. It's just a single mix. And uh, Sam Miguel celebrate the news. Deirdre, the Lord's Prayer from 1963, was going to be on here because Bruce really liked it, that Mike loved it. The whole group had a real thing for this, and they, they tried to put it on Keeping the Summer Alive as well. Um, and then the end of the album would have been forever. So then they assembled that. And that was, so, so the Beach Boys had two albums ready to go on different labels at this point, which is a whole unusual situation to be in. Yeah, this, this is even more of a mess than the other album, I feel. I mean, these are all sort of songs that they were recording back in 1969 uh, as potential singles on Capitol. And it's just such a weird running order. You have random mono tracks, duophonic tracks. Um, you have the instrumental When Girls Get Together. The Lord's Prayer, I mean... Uh, which sounds nothing like the Beach Boys at this time. It's very clearly an older recording, you know, with um, their young voices, and it's... I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about this album lineup? I mean, it's it's a, it's a strange one. Like, I think you said last time that it would have been, like, the worst Beach Boys album to date if they've released it. Um, and it's got some really strong stuff on here, but it kind of doesn't really... It's like they're, they're all individually good songs, but when you put them together, it doesn't really work as an album. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really, there's not, there's no real sort of like comfort zone on this album. It doesn't feel like it sort of belongs as one piece. Maybe I, I don't know. Like, a, like you know, listening to "All I Want to Do," that's a great song. Celebrate the news, Breakaway, San Miguel. Like just lo- looking at all the song titles, these are all really good songs. But when you put them together, it's like, you know, it, it doesn't really fit as an album. And then you've got like, you know, when girls get together, instrumentals on there. Um, it's really only. It's, it's only 11 tracks and one of them's The Lord's Prayer from 63. Um, it just doesn't really gel nicely and it would have had the There's least no Brian glue. Wilson on yeah. an album. Yeah, it would have had the least Brian Wilson on an album to date, I think, if they put that out. Um, you know, this and the first Sunflower album, like they're both like on their own. They wouldn't have been very good albums if they just released them as, as is, as they planned to. It seems like the, with this one, especially with all the sort of weird mixing going on, that they didn't really care about it. They were just like, you know, throw capital a bone and get this out of their hair. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if they put the Lord's Prayer on there just to have more Brian as well. Could be. Because uh, you're I, right. I mean, there's, there's very little of him on here compared to all other albums so far. So it seems like during the month of June is when Warner Brothers decided that they weren't going to put out the Sunflower album. I don't know how this happened. I don't know what changed from them, you know, pressing up the single in February and then the group promoting it, like saying, talking about their plans for the next few months. But it seems like June is the month that they decided that like they didn't want to put this out. Um, apparently all hell broke loose and everyone was at each other's throats and they were like having meltdowns and you know the, the Beach Boys probably don't take this kind of news well they'd all worked for months on this record and they were feeling good about it um, well I mean not only that but they went through um, they went through several years on Capital and they never had Capital reject a product that they, they delivered it was true. always yeah. just you, you know the agreement person. is the the group supplies the label with the material and, and the label releases it. 
Right, exactly. And I think Dave Burson said that, you know, they had no contractual right to say that they didn't want to take this album. They had no, there's nothing in the contract that said that they could reject albums like this, but they did. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of fair enough, but also like, come on, like <laughs> poor Beach Boys. Well, this is sort of a bit of foreshadowing because the group would be on Warner for several years and they would get, I want to say most of their albums rejected. Yeah, most of them. Yeah. Sent back, which is very, very strange. I don't really, you know, you don't hear about that on Capitol or CBS or I don't really hear about that with other groups either. It's it's um, sort of unusual. Yeah, they got they got knocked back on one after this. They got knocked back on Holland, um, the concert album, and then um, MIU was like rejected about like in in four different ways or something like that. Uh, <laughs> they didn't have the best relationship. Possibly Adult Child as well. Oh yeah, Adult Child. Yeah, the the that like bad Christmas album. You know, <laughs> it happened quite a lot of times. <laughs> so yeah, Mo Austin went over to Brian's house to kind of talk through like what was wrong with the record and you know mo was one of the only guys at the label that was really rooting for the beach boys and van dyke parks as well you know van dyke was was uh who convinced mo to sign them um because he's uh he's a good lad and he's an old friend of brian's you know so mo, mo and i think lenny warrenker went to brian's house to just sort of talk through um what like the, the reasons for it and stuff and what they wanted what they expected out of the group and I, I think it's interesting at this point that you went over to Brian and Brian was still sort of treated as the leader again and he was the one that they went to consult about this thing. And kind of the explanation as Desper is concerned is it wasn't so much the songs, but they wanted stronger productions. They wanted kind of like more powerful, you know, it's, it's kind of what we were talking about. There aren't many big songs on there. They, it, mm-hmm. it was said that there wasn't a problem with the songs, um, but kind of the productions, whatever that means. But, you know, I kind of, I get that. It's kind of like they wanted bigger sort of like, serious works on on there and it's that meeting at at, um at brian's house more um austin heard brian playing cool cool water on the piano and was like and was like hey you should you should record that um so they they kind of went back to the drawing board from the end of june through to early july they had a a sort of sprint to rejig the album a bit and uh, the first thing they did is they i guess probably caught on to the the fact that capital had gone and released um, well, sorry, EMI in the UK had, had released live in London. Um, and they were like, oh, great, okay, that means we don't need to give them those songs anymore because our contract's done. Um, and instead of doing a whole lot of new recording, they basically just swiped a lot of songs from like the album assembly that Capital didn't like own and they put them on the Sunflower album, which helped them. You know, they put on Deirdre, All I Want to Do, uh, Got Another Woman, and Forever. Like... You know, all I want to do and forever. Right. Are some of the strongest things on there, and then got another woman is kind of like has that sort of contemporary, like rock and roll thing that you know it's just a bit more serious than the sort of like silly Brian and Al songs. And then Deirdre, I don't know what they were thinking there, but you know people like Deirdre, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, this is where finally in, in we get like these sessions to fix up the Sunflower album five months after they've parked it. Um, and I guess the first song to talk about here is It's About Time. The song was credited to Dennis, Bob Berkman, Carl and Al. And um, 
Yeah, this guy Bob Merkman, he uh, doesn't have any credits on any of, the, any of the Beach Boys songs, but he has written a little bit about his experience of um, writing on this thing, so I'll kind of go through his story. He met Dennis in about May or June of that year um, through a friend of Dennis's wife, Barbara. Um, well, sorry, she wasn't married to Dennis at the time, but uh, yeah, that's basically how they met. And he was, um, I guess he was, he was kind of an amateur poet. Um, and they kind of, you know, he became friend, friends with Dennis, not close friends with him, but, you know, just sort of met the guy and hung out with him a little bit. And then Dennis um, wanted to hear that some of his, his work is his poetry or his lyrics or whatever he'd done. And uh, Dennis was kind of impressed with his way with words and then said that he was working on a track for the new Beach Boys album and like, he, do you want to write lyrics for it? So this is on, we don't have a date for the session, but on July 2nd, um, Dennis ran a cassette of the track at the studio for Bob, who took it away and wrote the lyrics that day. Um, and this, he's he's include, he's sort of uh, he's, he's sent out what his original lyrics were and all that before they were kind of changed by the group and expanded on. Uh, he got a call from the studio to say that Al Jardine had added a whole lot of lyrics to the middle, um, and then. Later on, he was invited over to Brian's house. He said he was made to wait 20 minutes in the front room where Al Jardine completely ignored him, sat practicing Sloop John being on the guitar, which is pretty funny. Um, and then after waiting all this time, <laughs> they brought him and they brought him into this this room in Brian's house. And Brian had this like barber's chair, like a like a hairdresser's chair as furniture in the house. I love that. You know, <laughs> even after the sandbox and all the stuff, he's still kind of putting crazy shit in his house. Um, and every, the whole group were there and they, they were all like, you know, crowding around him and congratulating him and saying that they loved his lyrics and, and the song was going to be a big thing and, you know, well done. And they kind of like pushed him into signing this contract, like just saying, you know, well done, you're great, sign this piece of paper. And he did. And then uh, he kind of, um, he signed away his publishing rights without really knowing what he was doing. And then it came out credited, split 25, 25, 25, 25 to... Um, Four different people with him you know initially he was thought he was running a song with Dennis, Dennis Wilson and he only got a quarter of the royalties in the end um, that's a fun tale of the Beach Boys being swines <laughs> <laughs> so this is I'm not sure if this this was inspired by uh, you know Warner Brothers you know, request for you know heavier songs or or anything like that or if it's something that Dennis already had um you know, had already written beforehand, uh, but this is a much, I'd probably say this is the heaviest song on Sunflower, even though I wouldn't really call it heavy by normal standards, but for Beach Boys standards, um, yeah, it is, and it's also a pretty fast song. Um, it's got a lot of energy. Anyways, they, it does, yeah. Um, they recorded the song mostly just with the group and the Dragon Brothers, but they also um, hired session bassist and drummer uh, Jimmy Bond and Earl Palmer Dennis Dragon handles the percussion uh, there's a track on there on, on the bootleg somewhere that's just the drum and percussion track um, and I'm not, do you know what why that exists? What, what's that even from? I think it was I think Gasper mixed that, you know it's on the same bootlegs as you know the Till I Die um, yeah. long mix that he did I think that was just something Gasper did for his own amusement because it's, I mean it's like shit hot that's like it's such a it, it's crazy the percussion on this track it's got so much energy behind it yeah i mean it's it's fantastic 
Um, but anyway, there is upright bass on this track played by Jimmy Bond. Um, Daryl Dragon plays uh, tack piano, and then the guitars are handled by Carl and Al. Um, and um, there's also an organ that comes in the breakdown in the middle uh, when everything kind of slows down and you get this cool vocal buildup. Um, really cool arrangement. I mean, this is probably exactly the kind of thing that Warner was looking for, and this really would have been a great A-side, um, you know, in place of add some music had it existed earlier or, you know, at any point, really. Yeah, this, this is exactly the song that they'd needed at the time. Um, and it's sort of, I think it's interesting that the basic track was none of the Beach Boys played in it. It was all, you know, it was quite a simple basic track. They based around sort of the percussion drums and then Daryl plays this quite sparse tack piano. And then Alan Carl sort of added the guitars on top of that and then built it from there. Not a lot to the track, even though it sounds like very big and powerful. Um, I think the only thing Dennis played on this whole thing is uh, he, he added a cowbell in the fade that was recorded with the tape slow, so it's very sort of dingy. Um, and yeah, this thing just sort of explodes. Like the, it's, it's got so much energy. It's not like anything the Beach Boys were really doing at the time outside of this. And it became like a concert staple. It was people really loved this thing in concert. Yeah, Carl's guitar playing on this is great. He has a, a solo, uh, a really energetic solo for the first time since, you know, Do It Again, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, this song, it's got an unusual structure. It's not even like a solo. It's like it goes through some verses and then it has like this bridge section. And then it's sort of just like a jam for the fade out. Like it, it's it's quite, yeah, it's it's not, it doesn't sound very traditionally Dennis Wilson in, in some ways, but when you take it in that kind of structure in the way that it sort of just like goes off and, you know, it's uh, that's very Dennis in the way that it's, it's not really ABAB. It's sort of just like all a continuous changing thing. Yeah, um, Carl also had some input on this song just in the in the music department. So that that probably explains the whole you know guitar riff that it's centered on and and focused on. Yeah, and it's such a fun thing to just like jam on and just like save in your head. You know, like it's a, it's a, it's a simple and like there's not many songs by the Beach Boys that are based around a riff in the same way that this is. It's very, like, off the times. And uh, the I guess talk about the writing contributions. Bob's lyrics are very, not what you come to expect from the Beach Boys, you know, it's that whole thing. I think it's been interpreted by some people as being about Brian, um, or about Dennis autobiographically, but it wasn't. It sort of just, it lines up quite neatly with that whole, I used to be a famous artist, I used to blow my mind sky high, sort of thing. And there is some weird stuff in here of like, I'm singing in my heart of the creation. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and it, it kind of, it, he's going on this whole sort of mystical Eastern philosophy train. And I think the lyrics are kind of clumsy. They're a little bit silly. I, I don't love them, but they did fit with what was going on in 1970. And they, you know, it's the sort of thing where you can imagine the Beach Boys going, oh, ooh, important lyrics, let's, let's sing this. Yes, that's great. Uh, but it's, you know, that kind of I'm now but a child who art erect in humility is like so, you know, the Beach Boys singing that, like what? Um, they changed some of these words as well. I think that might be where Carl's credit came in. Uh, I'm not really sure what Carl did on this, although I imagine possibly something to do with the, the guitar -y riff that the whole song's formed around. Or well, that would maybe would have been Dennis on the I piano, think so, I don't know. Yeah, yeah but, but uh, Bob's lyrics that he, he published online or in an email are a bit different to what Carl sings and I imagine maybe Carl changed it to make them more singable because if you try and sing Bob's lyrics as they were unaltered they don't fit the melody properly you know it goes the creation no oh yeah through which I play the part 
of the open-hearted laugh of realization dot 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 and he doesn't finish that line but car changed it to like and a weird time playing the part and an open-hearted laugh of realization in my mind or something he added like a little bit there to make it fit the the tune which you need to um bob felt kind of like done by by mm -hmm. al adding these lyrics in the middle section without his consent but you know i don't i Went away, he expected that because, like, he wrote basically the lyrics for half a song. And then, you know, you need a bridge part, so Al wrote the lyrics in the middle. And I think Al's lyrics are the best part of the song. Like, Al should have, yeah. he should have written the whole thing. He was so, like, it's it's so not Al Jardine, it's so flower power, and it's so, like, hippie, let's get together and love one another and stuff. That's great. It's really good stuff, and it's exactly what they needed at the time. Um, it's I'm kind of impressed with Al for this one. It's, he really did something nice with that. Um, that bridge section is just the best thing. Like I always forget that that's an Al Jardine lyric. It's, it's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not at all like my girlfriend Penny, she's kind of skinny, or any of the stuff <laughs> he's working on with Brian. Yeah, Dennis came up with the title, It's About Time, and the It's About Time chant. But uh, that, that bridge section is just like phenomenal the way it goes down into the upright bass, and Mike sings that. Like, it's just everything that's good about the Beach Boys, and like how impressive they were as a vocal group at the time is just here. Um, Mike singing that great bass part, echoing the bass riff, and then Carl and Al and Brian come in with this little sort of like worthless scanning parts to the side. Lead vocal in this is like just did like it amazing. It's one of his best, some of his best singing ever. I think we said that about quite a few Carl things recently, but this one is is just so it's an unbelievable <laughs> vocal. Well, I, I just love Carl yeah. Wilson around this time. He just yeah, sounds he's so, so good he's on so, everything. So good. <laughs> what else is there to talk about? I mean, the vocal arrangement is really cool too. Um, Brian ended up participating in this song. All six of them did. Yeah, I feel like it's a Brian vocal arrangement. Although these backing vocals throughout the song are completely buried in the original mix, they're barely there. You hear the track and backing vocals on the Feel Flows box, and um, I feel like the mix could have been a lot more punchy than it is on the Sunflower album. And you've got these like really powerful yeah. words yeah. vocals through the whole thing that just like they lost, and you, it's like they're not giving it all it could have done. It should have just been like balls to the wall throw the kitchen sink into this thing but it wasn't quite it's like they held back and it, I don't think it was the time to do a subtle mix but you know very powerful vocal section there I mean where the song ended up it was the, the B-side to Tears in the Morning what were they thinking? why? <laughs> Oh man, why why didn't they put this out as an as an A side? It boggles the mind, but you know this was such a crowd pleasing song as well. It was a it was a real concert staple of the time, and it got people clapping along and on their feet. They it was it was, it was a song that clearly showed that if the public was exposed to it with you know the right promotion and maybe like not knowing the Beach Boys did it, it probably could have done pretty well as a single. Maybe not like top ten, but I think it would have at least cracked the top twenty if it got the right sort of airplay. Um, mm -hmm. it was uh, maybe not the song to save them but it was the song to really turn people's, or turn people's pers perspective of them around because it's one of the ones that 
you know, the sort of like the 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 early seventies rock crowd really got onto when when they started doing this live and they started sort of Jack O'Reilly started building the popularity up again. Mm-hmm. So next time we're gonna we're gonna go back and do a cool cool water episode, which has been like on the bucket list for a long time and go over some things that we didn't know that when we talked about parts of it in the past and have it all in one place and talk about the epic history of, of the the song about water and and uh, yeah, I, w- I want to find uh, Bob Odenkirk talking about his reaction to finding out about this song because it's, it's pretty funny. Oh man, <laughs> I, for- I forgot that that was even a thing. We got to include that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, we gotta have that like as the after the bonus thing that Wyatt does. <laughs> awesome. So okay. Well, I guess we'll end it there. See ya next time. All right, Will Crera and John Brody, expert analysis as always. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, yeah, we're gonna be back next month with cool, cool water. Lots to be excited about right now. And um, man, 500,000. That is insane. So thanks, guys. Uh, here's to the next 500,000. And uh, here's to the, the continuing journey of the Beach Boys. I'm happy to have you guys on board with me. Till next time, take good care of your feet and sail on, sailors. or in a plastic bottle cool water is such a liquid I'm back (laughs) (laughs) beautiful I should have said in a bottle or in a tap that would have worked better oh well Um, (laughs) anyway (laughs)